You're listening to Full Metal Podcast, a hard defense podcast brought to you by the defense team at the Center for a New American Security. Welcome to Full Metal Podcast. I'm Susanna Bloom, and today we have two special guests on our episode, Mike McCord, former DOD comptroller, and Jamie Morin, former director of cost assessment and program evaluation for DOD. But first, I'm here with... Jerry Hendricks. And I'm Lauren Fish. To discuss the fiscal year 2019 budget request for defense. So the DOD total request comes to $686 billion, which is a $74 billion increase over the current continuing resolution level and $40 billion more than the Trump administration's 2018 request. So it's a pretty big increase, no matter how you look at it. But where's all this new money going? Well, I, th- I think one of the important things to realize and have a conversation about is that not all of this is going to buy new stuff. A lot of this money is going to fill some readiness holes that we had built into the force. And so that's pretty deep. We're making infrastructure investments and in things like runways and piers. Really, the, as a percentage, it may disappoint a lot of Americans that we're not going out and just buying a whole boatload, pun intended, of new ships or aircraft out of this. Yeah, I think that's right. You really see how much in a $40 billion plus up after what DOD really gets of that, about $20 billion after inflation and those sorts of factors, um, you're not really able to get a ton of stuff out of it. But there is some new stuff, right? Procurement and research development tests and engineering are growing the most out of all the accounts, which is interesting, 13% and 10% respectively, I think, over the FY18 request. And that's what more or less what you would expect to see in a budget that was designed to support a strategy that emphasizes strategic competition with China and Russia. But Jerry, I know you have some thoughts about how you might spend this plus up differently or or more effectively. Well, one of the things that disappointed me out of it was, uh, for instance, the Navy made a decision and they they came out with their 30-year shipbuilding plan and they heavily emphasized our high-end destroyers, the Arleigh Burke class destroyer. So they went essentially from 1.5 to 2 a year up to 3 per year. And that, to me, those are very expensive platforms. There's a $2 billion per ship platforms, probably the best in the world. But the fact is, is by spending $2 billion per copy, you're, you're not really getting your numbers up. And, and one of the things that I had suggested in the past was rather than going to three destroyers, if you held it two and then took the savings uh, and then bought these frigates, because these frigates are going to come in about $850 million apiece, and you could get two frigates for the cost of one destroyer, and that allows you to grow the force. And it is important that the Navy get the 355 ships to meet all of its requirements that are out there. And there's there's other issues come up with, like the Air Force deciding they want to retire all the B-2s as they bring the B-21s on. That just doesn't make sense. That's, that's sort of short-shifting the, the real need for platforms and, and capacity in order to cover down on our national commitments around the world. Yeah, I think I've got a slightly different take than you do, perhaps unsurprisingly. I was really disappointed to see in this request things like the F-35 buy, you know, so low, not a ton different than the FY-18 request for both the Air Force and the Navy, you know, with a plus-up of this magnitude, you kind of expect, I would have expected a higher priority on getting fifth-gen TAC Air out there. I think that the major takeaway for me from this budget was as much as $40 billion plus-up is, it's still not enough to avoid kind of making some tough decisions. Something that I didn't really see in the unclassified summary of the national defense strategy was, you know, clear guidance to the department about what mission they were going to stop doing or do less of in order to, you know, balance 
balance the books, balance the force. I don't know, Jerry, if you have any thoughts about that. Well, it's interesting. When I used to work in net assessment, you know, we would always cite that old Churchill who was citing Rutherford on, gentlemen, we've run out of money. Now it's time to start thinking. And the historical thought was, is that when things became fiscally constrained, that you would become more innovative. And certainly, if you look at the interwar period between World War One, World War II, that was a time of extreme fiscal constraint in which we had a lot of innovation. But the military services seemed to take it as a strategy that as fiscal constraint came upon them, that in fact that they would not innovate and that they would just as simply keep doing until it broke and then in an attempt to get more money out. And, and as it stands right now, the, the money is coming and they have not significantly changed either their approach, the concepts of operations or their strategies. They're kind of going with the same old, same old. And that to me is disappointing because it doesn't take into account some of the new capabilities and technologies that have come online. And we're sort of just layering on top of legacy forces. We're not really fully maximizing unmanned. We're not fully maximizing directed energy or electromagnetic. Some of the new things are, are even going whole hog into hypersonics. We're instead just going to continue to evolve the legacy force rather than have a revolutionary new force that could be possible. Well, I, I can think of at least one counterexample, and that's the Air Force's intent to reconsider their JSTARS recap, right? So JSTARS is a platform that provides battle management, command, and control. Basically, it you know tracks, finds and tracks targets in the ground and directs, you know, enables folks to direct fire towards them. You know, the Air Force had planned to simply replace the existing system, which is not a survivable aircraft that kind of packages the sensors and the controllers, the analysts all together in one aircraft that can't operate in a contested environment. And I think that it's a, a pretty bold move by the Air Force to say, look, you know, sensors have proliferated. We've come up with a lot of better ways to, to communicate. Maybe everything doesn't have to be packaged together in the same platform. You know, maybe there's another way to, to get after this mission or solve this problem. I think that's pretty innovative. Well, given some of the work that the two of you have done on the budget as it's rolled out, my question is, is how has the budget deal that came down from Capitol Hill affected sort of the overall strategy? Uh, Lauren, do you have some ideas on that? Yeah, I think what's interesting is you see the top line in this budget equal what the budget deal that was agreed upon in Congress come to, the 716 number for overall national defense spending. That meant some of the DOD documents had to be updated after they were originally released on the 12th of this month of February. So the OCO and base split has kind of changed. What'll be interesting to watch is how the Hill responds, if they add new things, if they change the composition of the budget, and then the pace of this. You know, so Congress can pat itself on the back for a minute about getting to a deal, but quickly we're going to be looking at the, the FY20 budget before long. So there's not a lot of time really to, to start thinking about what's next. Yeah, and you know, even from the administration's perspective, the Patrick Shanahan, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, was quoted a couple weeks back saying, you know, fiscal year 20, that's really where, you know, this administration is going to make its mark in terms of the budget. I think he called it the masterpiece. But FY20 is the last assured year that this administration will be executing its budget. Like it's almost, you know, it's not a debut. It's sort of like a last chance. And it's important to note that this budget, even Comptroller Norquist, when rolling it out, indicated that DOD was accepting a flat FIDEP. So for the next five years, they're anticipating only the 2% inflation growth. So for a president that, that campaigned heavily on building the force, this $40 billion is kind of what we're getting. And so 
FY20 being the year it'll hit. I mean, what's important is that the, this year's DOD documents are comparing to the 18 continuing resolutions. So we don't even yet have an appropriation for last year. So any plus ups, they're all still, we're waiting for them more or less. Yeah, and pending some significant change following the midterm election, I would believe that that would be the, the trend that we'll see essentially flat after this increase, unless something comes along that, that allows for entitlement reform that would then free up additional funds within the budget. Just frankly, I think there's some doubts about whether the two-year budget deal will actually survive. I think that the budget, the domestic side of the discretionary budget that was delivered to Congress has been declared dead on arrival by many factions because of the very deep cuts in that space. And so I think we'll have to see. I don't think it's a done deal. And the dead on arrival comments have come even from Republicans, even from the, the president's own party. At least last year, I know Senator Graham was particularly outspoken on the State Department funding, for example. So it'll be an important space to watch. Well, that about wraps it up for our roundtable discussion here. Stay tuned for our special guests. This is Susanna Bloom at CNAS. I'm here today with Mike McCord, former DOD comptroller, and Jamie Morin, former director of cost assessment and program evaluation at the Pentagon. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Our pleasure. Thank you. This is the first budget built entirely by the Trump administration, and I'm wondering how you guys think it stacks up against the late Obama budgets that uh, both of you built before you left the administration. Uh, thanks, Susanna. Uh, I guess the first thing I would say is, is you get about, this is about $100 billion more than the budget we would have had two years ago. And so that's a lot of money to put into any, any administration or any department that quickly. And so I think everyone should kind of make sure that it's spent well. 90% of this goes to the base, maybe 10% more goes into OCO. Some of the notable things that this administration is going to spend more money on because they have the headroom, it appears, to spend more money is on the triad. We saw that bill coming. Jamie, in particular, saw that bill coming. It's you know, well known for years, but they have the money, at least in these early years, to start dealing with it. Second, missile defense, which is uh, given North Korea something that was a big push at the end of last year. Third thing, they've made the force, the active duty force, about 5% bigger. That costs, you know, money, and you see the personnel account up about $14 billion from what it was two years ago due to pay raises and, and about 5% more people, not spread evenly across the services, but, but in the aggregate. So those are some of the places that you're seeing the money. $30 billion more procurement than two years ago, $30 billion more O&M than two years ago, or operating funds. So the force is going to be operating, spending more to operate. This reflects, I think, Secretary Mattis saying he wanted the force to be more trained and ready, and the force is a little bigger. Last point I'd make, you can make the force a little bigger and you can make it more ready. Those are not bad things to do, but you don't have to have a good strategy to do either of those things. You don't have to have a new strategy or a good strategy to have more training more and have it a little bigger. The question really is, what are you going to do with that bigger, more trained force? Yeah, absolutely. Just want to clarify, you're talking about the nuclear triad at the top Correct. of your Sorry. remarks. Yes. yes, the ICBM yeah. leg, uh, buying new submarines, which is something that is probably the number one modernization program in the department in a way in terms of its importance that it stay on schedule. Yeah. And, and then uh, the bomber, which is in a path that is fairly predictable at this point in its development. Though there's significantly more dollars in the budget, there's actually a great deal of strategic and programmatic continuity uh, from the both the last budget that was submitted in the Obama administration and also the transitional budget that was prepared uh, before Mike and I 
left the department. The, the emphasis on innovation was a constant. The emphasis on preparing and deterring great power conflict was a constant that was really emerging in the last couple of years of the Obama administration. And there's a you know significant focus on building the quality of the force. Mike did mention there's some growth in capacity here, but the growth in capacity is comparatively small relative to the additional resources that are being added. And the capacity that's being added in several of the services seems to take the form more of filling out the structure. Uh, you heard this very clearly in the testimony from the Air Force leadership where they were emphasizing improving manning, manning in the units they have, not adding a whole bunch more units. And it's even true with most of the procurement programs where you're seeing the quantity stay about the same. Yeah. I noticed that as well on the Army, too, is filling out units rather than building new units or increasing force structure versus end strength. Um, and also working on a, a project that, um, again, had its genesis in the latter part of the previous administration, which was the security force assistance units, which are intended not to be major operational units, but to take the pressure off the major operational units, off the combat brigades that are otherwise forced to deploy their most senior soldiers to meet those kind of uh, support missions for foreign partners. And that, that creates a a drain on the readiness of the whole unit because you're taking the leadership team out to do that role. So these new units will help to balance that demand a bit more. Yeah. So I think your impression was sort of similar to mine in that had we had more money, they've spent it in ways that might not be dissimilar from the choices that the end of the Obama administration Department of Defense might have made. I think that's true in a lot of ways. I mean, you actually see for aficionados of the defense budget to see a one percentage point change in a military department's share of the budget is a big deal. And the Army grows about, gets about one more percent of the budget under this. We probably wouldn't have gone quite that direction. Mm -hmm. But I think you can point to any number of programs that are very stable because of the internal nature of those programs. So the tanker program, you know, it's on its own path. The submarines are still buying two a year. Most missiles that are not being used in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria are very similar to where they were two years ago. Helicopters, the V-22, the Joint Strike Fighter. A lot of programs look a lot like they did two years ago, to Jamie's point. Mike, I'm not sure what your analysis is here. You might be closer to this than me, but it struck me that the, the Army was probably the big beneficiary in this cycle yes. because they got some additional fiscal guidance fairly late in the process, and the Army tends to have programs that can absorb additional quantity on the procurement side, whether it's yes. uh, armored vehicle upgrades and things yes. like that. Exactly. Yes, you saw that, especially on the M1 tank program, one of the more notable ones, joint like JLTV, joint like tactical vehicle, the replacement for MRAPs and Humvees, healthy growth there as well. So shifting to the reasons that we didn't have more money to spend in the defense budget, uh, if we could talk a minute about the broader economy, things like where inflation is headed, tax bill, and the kind of context that this defense budget sits in, and, and is that sustainable? I think we'll start with you, Jamie. Yeah, uh, so this is, I think, a really big uh, part of the strategic situation that the department's operating in. And I'm kind of reminded of the wise stockbroker's advice, which is when everybody's buying, sell. So I'll go out there and say, when fiscal profligacy is the theme of the day, it's probably time to start thinking about the next fiscal crunch. It is extraordinary to see how much the mood has shifted from, say, five years ago, when the enormous political consensus was that deficits anywhere near a trillion dollars a year were 
absolutely untenable and egregious threat to national security, right, with lots of testimony from leaders about that issue. And now we seem to be rapidly ramping up back to that level. If you step through it year by year, back in 2017, the federal government raised $3.3 trillion in taxes and spent about $4 trillion for a $600 billion-plus deficit. That felt like quite a bit, and it was more than $100 billion in total deficit at the end of the year than CBO had predicted just a year before in uh, January of 2017. So pretty significant, but the numbers go way, way up each year. In 2018, with the tax bill and the bipartisan budget agreement, we're looking at a deficit that the administration now projects will be $832 billion, so dramatically larger than the previous year, almost a full Air Force larger deficit, if you will. The entire U.S. Air Force budget is the difference in the deficit from 2017 to 2018. And again, from 2018 to 2019, it's going up by, again, about $150 billion, the deficit projections. So the department's got to be cautious, I think, at this point. They're out your budget projections, anticipate largely a, a budget that keeps pace with inflation but doesn't grow further in 2020 and 2021 and 2022. Um, but even that may be ambitious if because I think there's a real risk the political climate could change and we could end up, again, gravely concerned about the impact of these deficits for national security and the health of the economy. And if you look back to, if you would have asked the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the entire Joint Chiefs today or five years ago what they would what they would like and what they would settle for, what they would like would be a steadily increasing at about 2% a year, the same kind of scenario Jamie's describing that they would like to have after this year. And what they probably would have lived with was a flat line that was at least predictable and was delivered on time. The history since the Budget Control Act is neither of those. You don't get the flat line. You don't get the slightly increasing line. You get wild swings up, down, flat some years down. Wait, this is a giant swing up this year. So that's not a recipe for good management. And try and imagine now what's going to happen in two years when this deal, if it, if it even survives two years, will happen. You'll need another deal. And then when the caps are off two years after that, the deficit's a trillion dollars. Would you make a good prediction of what you think the defense budget is going to do in 21, 22, when the cost of modernizing the triad really hit? But all that said, 2019 is an enormous opportunity for the Department of Defense because we've got a fiscal agreement that sets the top line. It'll be really interesting to see with all the late term budget churn, how much uh, the appropriations committees are able to scrub out of the budget to fund their priorities. But this is a year where we actually have a top-line agreement, and it's the best possible chance for the department and the Congress to have something approaching regular order. Yeah, and I'd like to believe that that's what's going to happen, but think back two years ago. We had a two-year agreement that was supposed to set us up for a smooth transition. What did we get? One side saw that they could get an advantage. We had the longest continuing resolution in the history of the Defense Department. They didn't get a deal till May when we had a pre-agreed top line. Now we have another two-year deal, and for those of you who haven't seen it, go to the Office of Management and Budget website, read the letter from OMB Director Mulvaney to the Speaker where he proposes to walk away from that deal already on the non-defense side. So he only wants the part that he agrees with, and he doesn't propose to live with the other part. Now, okay. Technically, the, the president maybe was not a party to that agreement, but he encouraged it, supported it, and signed it. And now I, I fear we're being set up for the same kind of turmoil when you have in this budget non-defense numbers for all the other things the government does that are, that are driven, driving to levels 100 to $150 billion less than they were a couple of years ago not even counting for inflation and population growth. So these are the things that, you know, NIH, 
many things that are out there that I think American people would consider part of their security the next time a major credit reporting company loses all your personal data keeping your kids safe from gun violence in schools or pandemics. None of these things DOD can help you with as great as DOD is. So you need that whole of government balance, and, and I don't see it really there in this administration's budget request. So as good as, as Jamie said, as good as the setup is of a two-year you know peace in the valley deal, it, we couldn't follow through last time, and I think we're being set up for failure perhaps this time if, we, if we're not going to live with the deal. So that's a really interesting example from very recent history of, of deals falling apart. Um, but an example just from a few decades more back, if you look at the buildup that occurred in the 80s under Reagan, you know, happy days for defense. Mm-hmm. And just a few short years later in the early 90s with the peace dividend, it was the largest contraction that the department had seen subsequently. And I wonder a little bit if we're setting ourselves up for a similar dynamic, a a big expansion followed by a rapid contraction in the defense space. Well, so the risks of that, I think, are driven by the external threat environment. And since we're a democratic society, how the American people perceive that external threat environment. And then also the balance of national considerations across all of the different things that we rely on government to do. The demographics are not going to change, right? We have a large swath of the population coming into their retirement years. And while we've made some progress in reducing healthcare cost growth, it is that driving demographic factor is going to shape everything. And then we also have the other federal priorities that Mike just talked about. I mean, I'm now leading a space policy center at the Aerospace Corporation. And the amount of opportunities in space, both on the defense side and on the exploration side, are enormous. But those have to stack up against all those other federal priorities. And in an environment of uh, fiscal pressure, those things will tend to get squeezed out. They'll also tend to suffer from the sort of uncertainty and turmoil that Mike's talked about so compellingly. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us here today. Some great insight into both the defense budget and the broader context that defense budget, and we appreciate it. Thank you. Real pleasure.